Time for our monthly visit from Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental in Columbia. And this month, Bernice talks about the value of nasal breathing. Well, that's interesting. We haven't done this before. Bernice, good morning. Thanks for joining me for today. And what was the inspiration behind this topic? Good morning, Wayne. So over the past couple of years, I've mentioned it, I did a whole bunch of courses with the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine and even achieved my diplomat status in that. And that was a really interesting journey. And as I was going through that, some of my fellow study club members are very interested in it also. And we all came across this incredible book that's called Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art. It was written by James Nestor, who is actually a um, science reporter and investigator. And um, he has really delved into how important nasal breathing is. And um, that was part of the inspiration for today. By the way, I want to back up to what you said. You've got diplomat status? What does that mean? So that means that you take a whole bunch of courses and you do sleep appliances on a few patients. So that's basically people who cannot tolerate a CPAP machine. And there's a lot of them. The other thing I'll, I'll get into is the military exams that I did this past weekend and when I saw with those soldiers, especially if you're a soldier with sleep apnea, often the CPAP machine just feels too confining so that those people are better off with sometimes with a sleep appliance. The CPAP is always the standard of care, but... I wanted to learn more and more about how we can handle in the dental field, how we can be helpful in the sleep arena. So to do that, there were a few patients that I had to follow and submit. Then there's an exam that you take, and after all of that, you get this certificate. And um, that also tells the sleep physicians who may be referring patients to the dentist that it's not just that I... I'm going to send off to the lab and do a snore appliance. I basically understand a lot of the ramifications of the treatment that we're doing just because I went through all that. Bernice, the inquiring minds want to know, what's the relationship between, well, our topic, but between nasal breathing and oral health? So nasal breathing, if you breathe through your nose, almost every part of your body will be healthier. So this past weekend, I spent three days up in Reading, Mass., at a military base, and in doing that, I end up, over the three days, doing exams of about 170 soldiers. So they're kind of quick survey exams, but it was pretty obvious that the data that James Nestor talked about in his book and the things I learned in all my sleep courses were that about 50% of the population is breathing through their mouth. Now, we as dentists are the gatekeepers of the mouth. You know, that's what we look at. So part of my exam with the soldiers is to look in the back of their mouth. So when I do that, I notice some things that indicate that they are breathing through their mouths instead of breathing through their noses. And when I brought that up in my short time with the soldiers, a lot of them are really not aware of it. 
some of them say, yeah, you know, I really have trouble breathing through my nose, and, you know, I went to the ENT, and they said I was fine. So it's another area, I think, that we all have to be more aware. As I may have said in the past on shows, what I love about being a dentist is we basically do most of our treatment within the confines of our office. So when you go to the physician, they send you one place for blood tests, they send you somewhere else for x-rays, they send you somewhere else for physical therapy. We basically do everything except for some of the specialties like oral surgery maybe or orthodontics. But you're able to gather all of that data, you know, the exam of the patient, the x-rays, whatever other tests we do, medical history, and we see a lot of patients every six months. So that means we can really follow the general health a little bit easier than a physician who may not see you as often as we do. So then it becomes an obligation in my mind to tell you if I see things that might cause problems. And here's a question that I've never asked Bernice before. But has the human skull evolved over the centuries to make it easier for us now in 2022 or harder in 22 to nasal breathe? So it's made it much, much harder to nasal breathe. So if you look at skulls, and people have done this from years ago before industrialization came into being, people, nobody had crooked teeth. They didn't find one skull with crooked teeth. And the belief is that's because of several things, but one of many is the fact that people were breathing appropriately through their noses. And what we did once the industrialization of society came about, people started um, doing less breastfeeding, they were not eating hard foods that helped develop the anatomy and the muscles. We went to softer foods. We went to sugary foods. All of those things seem to help change the shape of our skull. And I would recommend to anyone who would like to, to read this book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor, because it's a very approachable book. It's a pretty easy read, and he does not get involved in a lot of kind of scientific language to make things more difficult. But that being said, what has happened is our faces have become more elongated. Our noses and palates have become narrower. So when your nose and palate become narrower, it drags the sinuses down to where there's less availability. There's not as open an airway. The other thing that happened is our chins have started to recede. And so when that happens, again, it helps block off the airway more. And as a consequence, we've ended up with crooked teeth. Now, being a dentist, that's pretty interesting because probably 90% of the United States population has some sort of what we call malocclusion. So it may be crooked teeth. It may be that you have an in, what we call an anterior open bite, so your front teeth don't come together. It may be that you have what's called crossbite, where the back teeth aren't aligned exactly right. 
basically there's a whole lot of people that look like they need orthodontic correction. And it's interesting that before industrialization, that was not true. We have the, the skulls to study and prove it. And I was wondering about environmental issues that people now have to deal with that maybe weren't as big a deal 100, 200, maybe 50 years ago, and that would be allergens in the air, whether it be more cigarette smoke, whether it be pollutants in the air and things like that. Does that make it more difficult for people to get the benefits of nasal breathing? Well, if they did do nasal breathing, then they would be able to counteract those effects much better because of the filtration system of your nose. So what's happened is when we don't breathe through our noses as well, we cannot filter out these pollutants. We've created a situation where people have narrower sinuses. Nothing works as well so that even though we are equipped very well physically, if we would increase our nasal breathing, that would really help. And it really starts with kids. So part of the way that you help kids to develop their faces so that they do have a wider palate and have an easier time nose breathing is through breastfeeding and also ensuring that once the kids are weaned off of breastfeeding, that they're eating harder foods. And that's that's a change because, you know, I remember when my kids were young, it was, everything was super soft. And that's part of the problem. If we're always eating super soft stuff, we're not developing our bones and muscles to the extent that, that we really should. So it does have an effect, but we could deal with it if we did a better job with nose breathing. When you're talking about eating harder foods, you don't mean like jawbreakers, do you? No, I no, because that's like that's a perfect sign of the industrial age where it's pure sugar and there's no nutritional value. So the skulls in the past that had nice wide jaws and they had noses they could breathe through and they had straight teeth, they weren't eating jawbreakers. You know, they were eating natural, firm foods. Once the Industrial Revolution came along, we moved to refined sugar, refined flour, and they're actually in, I think it was like the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, the um, a, a dentist who had developed the research branch of the then to become American Dental Association, it wasn't the American Dental Association yet, Um, He went around the world and studied populations where within even the same family group, there were people who had switched to an industrialized diet and people who had remained with a more traditional diet. And he noticed huge differences in that population. And luckily, he kept all that research because some of his conclusions were not really appropriate. He thought that it was just that the vitamins and minerals weren't there, but we've realized it had a lot more to do with physically you were giving your jaws a workout, you were developing bones. So women, you know, are often exposed with age to osteoporosis, and one of the things they tell you when you have osteopenia, which is the beginning, is to do more weight-bearing exercise, so basically using resistance and force. So if you compare eating something that 
is very soft to like celery or something like that, then you are going to build more bone and healthier muscles and your system will all work better. All right, so we're promoting the value of nasal breathing this morning. Conversely, a lot of people are mouth breathers. What are the ill effects of increased mouth breathing? So the problem is is really amplified during sleep because if we all thought about it and we had a pretty healthy system, you know, we're talking about not having a deviated septum or some other reason why it's hard to breathe through your nose, during the day you can be thinking about doing nasal breathing, but at night a lot of the population sleeps with their mouth open. So one easy thing to start with right away is to try not to sleep on your back ever. Because when you sleep on your back, everything relaxes and you can close off your airway more. And then that space from your nose where you could breathe through your nose gets closed with your tongue dropping back. So if you're on your side positionally, that will be a better plan. So there's a lot of other things that can be done. So one thing that happens, so let's say somebody is diagnosed with sleep apnea. So basically, sleep apnea, you're choking to death at night for a minute or so. So what the CPAP machine does is it pushes air to make sure that you're getting the oxygen that you need. If you are a healthy person who's nasal breathing, you get the advantages of filtration of the air and pressure changes and a lot of things that condition the air we breathe in to give our body more oxygen. So breathing with your mouth open at night is a problem, and especially with kids. Kids should not be snoring. So if your child, you know, so let's say they have a cold and they have a stuffy nose, you should try to use Flonase or a nasal spray, talk to your physician, do whatever you can to help them be able to breathe through their nose. But on a normal basis, they should not be snoring because that means that they are sleeping with their mouth open, and that's going to totally change the development of the bones and muscles of the face. So that's something that the pediatrician really needs to know about. Is nasal breathing an acquired talent? Is it something that a mouth breather can learn? How would one do that? So if we go back to those skulls that we talked about in the past, that was much easier because there weren't those restrictions. We have developed longer faces, narrower palates. It's, we've made it harder. We have narrower noses. It's just the whole system is not as wide as it once was. But if you read this book by James Nestor, one of his original interests were uh, deep, deep sea divers, and they called them deep free divers. So they dive down deep without any equipment. And they have trained themselves to hold their breath for up to six minutes. So the answer to your question, Wayne, is yes, you can train yourself to do a better job with nasal breathing. And there's some pretty fascinating things he talks about where people have learned, for example, to control their breathing so that they can hold their breath 
for six minutes. There are also people who have conditioned themselves through breathing to increase their body temperature and a lot of good benefits that come from that also. But one of the things he talks about in the book is is a bunch of um, people who have trained themselves to do that. And so they put these cold, wet sheets on these people. And as they controlled their breathing to warm themselves up, it actually dried the blankets and they were completely dry. So the long answer (laughs) is yes, you can control your nasal breathing. And along the same token, you're better off if you breathe through your nose at night. But you can't really control that because you're sleeping. So is one way to change that habit to try consciously to breathe through the nose more during the day? So definitely nose breathe during the day. There are techniques. Um, So when I mentioned my soldiers, I did have several soldiers who I looked in their mouth and right away they had a lot of gum disease in the front. And you often, you can associate that with mouth breathing at night because they're drying everything out and it's a strain on the system. So straightening out anything you can, for example, if there are very large tonsils and they need to be removed. That's what happens most often in kids if you realize they're having trouble with nasal breathing is to take the tonsils out. That's one of the issues. There are also techniques, and you can either work with, uh, mostly it's, I think, speech therapists who work with um, training your muscles to change your method of breathing. There's also a technique of actually putting a small piece of tape over your mouth at night to encourage nasal breathing because basically you can't open your mouth. So one of the the things that James Nestor did with a, a friend of his, they actually did a little study themselves where they had silicone inserts in their noses so they could not nasal breathe 24-7. And he was amazed at the changes in his blood pressure, snoring, sleep apnea, anxiety. Basically, he felt terrible. And this was over just 10 days. So his average blood pressure, which was like 117 over 75 when he started, during those 10 days went up to, it was like 150 over 102. So even in that short amount of time, and I think we all understand that because if you have a bad night's sleep, you don't feel good the next day. So sleep is super important. So the second part of the study was they removed the nasal inserts and allowed them to mouth breathe. And, I mean, allowed them to nose breathe again. And within 10 days, all of those parameters, how much oxygen they were taking in, their blood pressure, they, did, uh, they checked snoring and sleep apnea, all of those things got better once they were able to breathe through their noses again. As you talk about the value of nasal breathing, what about the people who have chronic nasal issues, things like allergic rhinitis, where their nose is always clogged up, and they would like to do nasal breathing, but they become mouth breathers because they can't do it. What do they do? The funny thing is that the cure for getting rid of a stuffy nose is to breathe through your nose. 
And so you need to do whatever you can. And part of my issue in talking about this, you know, I know I am a dentist, so I'm not the one who's going to do your tonsillectomy or even diagnose what should be done. My role, I think, since I look in mouths and I can see the problems, is to make people aware, and then you need to go to your appropriate care provider and say, I'm concerned about this, what could I do? What I can tell you from things I have learned is there's a lot of things we can do to improve this. And, for example, um, you know, if you have, as I said before, a deviated septum, you know, that can be corrected to help you breathe better. Sometimes, you know, with the kids, if there's a stuffed animal that they go to sleep with and that animal hangs out with the dog during the day, you know, there's allergic dander and things that keep exposing the child to that. So I have heard that the pediatricians will then recommend if you just, so I had actually, I had a patient who, you know, we were concerned about the mouth breathing at night, and their physician recommended the Flonase before they go to sleep at night, and it made a huge difference. So the father did tell me that there was snoring before, and now he never hears the snoring. So you need to do whatever you can and work with your medical providers. What came out in this book that I'm describing, and it was published in 2020, is he was really amazed at what he didn't know, that no one had ever talked about. So I think what we need to do is to talk more about the importance of nasal breathing. So another thing people are very aware of, you know, is yoga and controlling your breathing and how much more relaxed that makes you feel and how it decreases depression, anxiety. So that's all about appropriate breathing. What are the benefits of nasal breathing? Why is it a good idea? So when you, I mean, even everyone thinking logically, as you take air in through your nose, there's tiny little uh, hairs that are called cilia in your nose. So the first thing it does is filter the air. If you take air in through your mouth, you're letting it go directly into your trachea, esophagus, you down those areas, and the only filtration system there are your tonsils. And the nose is much, much more efficient. So the other thing that happens is as you take the air in through your nose, it actually warms up. It also gets conditioned and, you know, not to go into great detail, but there's some chemical processes that happen that allow the air to be, the oxygen to be more available to your system. So if you are breathing through your nose and it's being heated, filtered, pressurized, conditioned, when it gets to your lungs, you have about 20% more oxygen available than if you were breathing through your nose. And if we think about it, um, the daily rates is like 30 pounds of air that we take in through our lungs. And if 20% of that is greater oxygenation, then you're going to be healthier. You're going to feel better because your cells are getting more, 
more oxygen. So there's huge benefits to nasal breathing. And you talk about the uh, increased moisturization for the lungs, but, you know, I think to myself, well, if I mouth breathe, people know I'm full of hot air, but doesn't mouth breathing give you some form of moisturization as well? Well, not not as much because when you take air in through your nose, within, not to get into too much detail, but there are things called turbinates in the nose, and they're like multiple convoluted layers. So there's a lot more time spent there. If you breathe through your mouth, it basically goes right into your airway, and it bypasses all of that area in the nose. So even time, when you're breathing through your your nose, the air is spending more time going through that whole system than when you're breathing through your mouth. And that being said, just so nobody out there calls in, I am not a pulmonologist, so I am not the expert in what happens to air. I just know those basic facts about the benefits of breathing through your nose. All right, well, here's another off-beat question for you, that when you think about breathing through your nose, I think most people automatically think of inhaling. Is there an exhaling benefit to nose versus mouth? Is it doing a better job getting rid of stuff in your lungs and all that, or is that pretty much a wash? So, you know, I think to maybe make this a little clearer, you know, we all know what hyperventilation is, and that's basically when someone starts breathing really quick through their mouth. And what you do when you're breathing that quickly is there are sensors in your body, and you take in oxygen and you breathe out CO2, and there are sensors in your body that say, oh, there's too much CO2, I need to breathe out. So if you're doing that too quickly, you mess up those sensors, and they just go into emergency mode and think, uh-oh, you know, I'm not getting. And that's sort of a very, very simplified explanation of what happens. So breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth is fine. Controlled breathing, when you look at, like, the yogi masters and another thing that uh, James Nestor brings out in his book is, there was actually a woman, and I think it was like in the 1920s, 30s, who had scoliosis, and she went through a whole regimen of learning how to breathe better and control her breathing. And I've seen pictures that she actually greatly improved her scoliosis. People who uh, have emphysema can be trained to breathe better through their noses and improve their lung capacity. So definitely you can make a huge impact. But when we talk about those uh, divers and people who can hold their breath for a long time and increased uh, lung capacity, so you think also about singers because they have to be as efficient as possible in how they use their breath. So breathing through your diaphragm. When you're doing your controlled breathing through your nose, I think that that helps control all of those processes we're talking about. Yeah, i got a ways to go before I can do the six-minute hold-your-breath thing like the divers that you talked about. Bernice, inquiring minds want to know that when you have patients in your office, in your chair, can you spot the mouth breathers versus the nose breathers? Yeah, so that's so easy for us in dentistry. 
if nothing else, let's say you're not really interested in doing a really thorough exam of your patient. When you put your mirror into their mouth and it fogs up, they're breathing through their mouth because they're fogging up your mirror. Another thing that um, is pretty obvious in dentistry to me, when the position that we treat our patients today is made to help the ergonomics of the dentist so you can practice longer. So we are seated, the patient is in a prone position, and there's an assistant helping out. That position is the same position as the one that's very difficult for people with sleep apnea because you're lying on your back and the throat, if you don't have super conditioned strong muscles, everything drops back, the soft tissue closes it off, and those are the people who will say to me, I have to sit up. And so they'll like lean forward and feel like they can breathe again and then they can lie back. Those are like really easy kind of physical signs that someone does have an airway issue, a breathing problem. There's also, within a very short period of time, when you examine people, even before they sit down, you can take a look at them. If their face seems pretty elongated, their nose is very narrow, if you look at them from the side, their chin is recessed, it's not a real prominent chin, that person most probably has trouble breathing through their nose because the airway is just much narrower. And often that starts out with kids who have allergies and since they're not breathing appropriately through their noses, all of the anatomy changes. So one of the many things that we can see as dentists after we start looking in their mouths is when you look in the mouth and you say open, and you can see the back of the throat, and you can see there's a uvula back there, there's tonsils back there. You can see a lot of stuff that's like the beginning of your throat. That's healthier. If you look in there and all of that is blocked and you can't see anything, that person probably has an airway issue. So there's a classification called malinpati, and when you're going in for surgery, the anesthesiologist wants to know what class you are. So if you're class one, it means we look in there, you can see the tonsils, you can see the uvula, you can see a lot back there, pretty open. So that's class one. That's much easier for the anesthesiologist to put that airway tube in there because things aren't narrowed. If you look in there and all you see is the back of the tongue, that person is going to be a much bigger challenge for the anesthesiologist because their airway is more compromised. So that you can see looking in there right away. Now you mentioned that the mouth breathers sometimes fog up the mirror that you have inside their mouth. Would it ever get to a point where you might request, not demand, but request, hey, can you breathe through your nose? Or does it ever get to that? You know, so... I've been at this for 38 years. There's a whole lot of anxiety involved still for a lot of people in dentistry. There's that problem of, you know, people sometimes, as soon as they look at me, they'll either say, I hate the dentist, or they'll say, okay, I don't floss. So, 
you know, psychologically, you just want to help people to feel as comfortable as possible. So I try to have that discussion about nasal breathing, mouth breathing at our first appointment before we even get into the mouth when it's a little bit more relaxed. If someone says to me, yeah, you know, I really have trouble breathing through my nose, then they're really aware of the problem. And then we start talking about strategies of what they could do. Sometimes, as you said, if I go in there and they fog up the mirror, then I will say sometimes, you know, do you have trouble breathing through your nose? And sometimes people are not aware at all. And then, you know, I can throw in some of the things we've talked about today, but I just don't want to be confrontational because that's just an uncomfortable moment. So what we end up doing is having the assistant, you know, keep blowing air on the mirror. But I do feel like it's my obligation at some moment during the appointment to say to the patient, you know, how do you sleep? That's one of my first questions. (laughs) Because if they are a mouth breather, they're probably going to have more sleep issues also. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to be sleep apnea. Some people have restless leg syndrome. Some people have insomnia. And so that opens up a discussion, and sometimes, you know, I'll have so one young woman comes to mind, she was late 20s, and she was a physical therapist, and she knew she was clenching and grinding her teeth, and if clenching and grinding is associated with having trouble breathing at night, people tend to bring their jaw forward, and they can cause wear and tear on the front of the teeth in the mouth, and that can be a sign that they might be having sleep issues. Well, she was not the prototypical older, overweight man, so it was harder. She had to kind of fight with her health care providers to enable her to go ahead and have a sleep study, and they discovered, yes, she did have a problem. And now she wears a, um, she actually wears a mandibular appliance and not a sleep apnea machine because she was very smart. She caught her problem very early, but when you talk to her, she'll tell you right away, I feel less anxious, I feel healthier, I feel more rested during the day, all of those, you know, wonderful, wonderful benefits. Then there's people like me who fall asleep in the dentist chair, and then the dentist asks, how do you sleep? And I said, well, I'm sleeping fine until you ask that question. <laughs> hey, a little side trip here down to the Department of Seroptimus Department. Bernice, the past governor of the Northeast region of the Seroptimus International of the Americas, what's up with your favorite club? So we have completed the application process for the Live Your Dream Award, and that's to remind people the award we give to a woman who is head of household, has a financial need, and is enrolled in an educational program. And it can be anything above the high school level. So that person sends us an application, recommendations and things, and now we're into the process of judging. So we have three judges who are not seroptimists, and we give them a sheet and they evaluate it, and we'll be coming up with our winners. And we've traditionally, in the past, we used to just give one um, award to the top place person for $1,000. 
Now we've expanded it. I think it was we're up to 1600 for the first place winner, and then we try to give some smaller awards. And those awards can be used for anything, you know, not tuition, but for any of the uncovered expenses like child care, gas, you know, anything you need to help you get through. So our judging process is happening. The other program we have that we need more people to apply to, it's a grant up to $500, and it covers testing licensing fee, and we actually usually give the candidate uh, a $50 gas card to be able to get to the exam. So those are professions like uh, nursing, like CNA, LPN, um, hairdressing, even safe serve the people who work in the restaurant industry. And, you know, now restaurants are pretty desperate for personnel, so there's an exam you can take that's called the Safe Serve exam, and it trains you in safe practices, you know, that are clean in a kitchen, and that also has a fee attached to it. So if you're anybody who is trying to get certification for one of those things, go on to our website, which I think is back up. We were down for a couple of days because we were creating a new website, or just go on to the Facebook of SI Willimantic, and you'll see the details. And we'd love to have more applicants for those grants. So, Bernice, do you have tips to improve the effect of breathing on your health? So, since we've been saying from the beginning of the show, breathe through your nose. Whatever it takes to help you to get to breathe through your nose, that's really important. That's the biggest take-home lesson. You also need to do slow and steady breathing. You know, and I think all of us have the same issue, especially during all of the COVID stuff. There's a lot of stress out there. There's a lot of things to worry about that we don't have control over. Anytime you feel that overwhelmed feeling, slow and steady breathing is so important. And, you know, that brings to mind um, my daughter has a really great habit of meditation, and she developed that habit when her sixth-grade teacher decided to teach her class how to meditate. You know, that elementary, not elementary, but public school education, I think it would be great if they could get people to go in there and talk about nasal breathing also and helping to help people do that slow, steady breathing. Well, they don't. That's why we have you here this morning. Well, you know, I can't do it all by myself. I need some helpers out there. So the slow and steady breathing idea is to kind of take in air over five to six seconds and then let it out over five to six seconds. So if you do that, you're giving that air a chance to really get all the benefits of going through that nasal, nasal passage for you. I made a joke early this morning when you talked about hard foods, and I mentioned jawbreakers. Well, no, that's not what you had in mind. But when you talk about chewing hard foods, what qualifies as a hard food? The things that we used to eat from nature, celery, carrots, turnips. You know, we used to eat raw foods before the industrialized um, industrialization of food, the food industry. And I think... Probably the 50s were the height of problematic eating with Velveeta cheese and Jello and all sorts of things that just made it so easy that we didn't work out those swallowing, chewing muscles at all. And it's important to get back to that. And 
one of the things that James Nestor talks about in his book is, unfortunately, some of the things that we think are really healthy, the foods that we're all trying to eat, like smoothies or avocado or oatmeal, they're really not giving you much chewing power. So things like nuts. And that being said, I do have patients who have not been able to take care of their dental needs the way that I would like them to, and so they sometimes have compromised teeth and they can't chew the way they should. So it's so important to try to keep your dental health great. And, you know, and that starts from from childhood. So especially with kids, you know, peanut butter, you know, the kids like peanut butter, but instead of peanut butter and jelly, put the peanut butter on a celery stick or a rice cake, you know, then there's more chewing power involved. That's what we mean by chewing harder foods. There are also oropharyngeal exercises, and I don't know a lot about those, but basically um, if your muscles aren't really tight, then as you lay down on your back, the whole system kind of collapses and makes it harder for you to breathe at night. So if during the day you're eating harder foods, you're exercising those areas, and there actually are oropharyngeal exercises that another specialty could tell you more about than I can, but basically a workout for your throat and swallowing, chewing system can help keep things much healthier, and it's not too late. No matter how old you are, you can still get those muscles to be more conditioned. Well, would chewing on a well-done steak count as chewing hard foods as an oral pharyngeal exercise? Well, you know, it's better than Velveeta cheese, but it's not as good as celery or carrots or nuts. Or, as you said, avocados, which, by the way, being a California guy, I really, really like, but I guess they're not really helping breathing affect or benefit my health. And uh, my health. And then you talked about breathing deep. You're talking about like going off in a corner and sitting in a chair or standing in a corner and just inhale, exhale. How does that work? So, you know, I think when you may have come across some of that stuff in your profession, your voice needs is, you know, is your career basically. And if you're not breathing appropriately, it's hard for you to really use your voice. So a lot of the uh, vocal coaches, you know, the diaphragm breathing, that's what we're talking about here. And I find among my patients that people who do get involved with yoga, they seem to understand that deep breathing a lot better than someone who's not involved in anything like that. All righty. And again, I, I think that awareness is a factor in this too. A lot of people don't even think about mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. So it's a matter of once you realize you're breathing more through the mouth, then you try to make some minor, maybe even less than minor um, behavioral changes to try to breathe through the nose more because it is more beneficial for your oral and physical health. And keep in mind those those divers that aren't using an oxygen, you know, they're not using tanks to dive deep. They have just trained themselves to control their breathing and be able to hold their breath for a longer period of time. So it is possible, but as with everything in life, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But awareness, you're right, Wayne, is the key. 
So let's back up the truck a little bit here and talk more about this mouth breathing thing, which you're trying to discourage people from doing. How do you recognize mouth breathing? You gave one sign earlier, but you've got some other ones. And so one thing that we really need to be aware of in kids are tongue ties. So part, if you you think about the roof of your mouth, the roof of your mouth is the floor of your nose. So the wider that is, the easier it is for you to breathe. So if you put your clean thumb into your mouth and your thumb goes way up and it's a narrow, high, vaulted palate, that's making it harder for you to breathe. And what helps as kids are growing, what helps them to develop that wider palate is to have their tongue in the appropriate position. So you can bring your tongue against the roof of your mouth with your teeth almost open. And if you have a tongue tie, that becomes harder because you just can't put your tongue in the right place. So those are some of the things with kids that I'd like um, the pediatricians to be more aware of. So I actually had a personal friend who had a child, and I think she was 42 at her first child, and within a month or two, she had a procedure done to remove the tongue tie on her infant. And a lot of people around were like, you know, she's crazy putting an infant through that. Well, the infant is not going to remember that at all, but having no more tongue tie, being able to breastfeed healthily will help them develop a system that will help them for the next 90, 100 years. Works for me. You know, going back to the, uh, the the breathing thing we talked about a moment ago, and you talked about me and the voice and stuff like that. Well, I had a pretty well-documented, not one, but two long-term, three-month voice outages. And I went to not just a voice therapist in Long Meadow, Mass., but I went to the Yukon Speech and Hearing Clinic also. And, yeah, they did talk to me about breathing and diaphragm and that kind of stuff. And I have to admit that, you know, this hasn't really been an issue for me for 30 years now, but it's something I learned quite a bit about. It is a thing. It is a good thing that if you learn to adjust your breathing, it can have a lot of positive benefits in your life. And I'm just going to throw one thing out here that I didn't really put in my outline, but it's kind of funny. There is an instrument called a didgeridoo, and it's like a very long pipe that you uh, can make music through. I think it's an aboriginal thing from Australia or somewhere. But if you Google didgeridoo, you can actually order one. And if you learn to play the didgeridoo, it actually functions to help your muscles and your breathing to be healthier, which was kind of interesting. Who knew that when they heard the song by Rolf Harris called Timey Kangaroo Down Sport? Because he talks about a didgeridoo in that song. And yes, you told me to look it up, and Bernice, you know that I did. And I didn't know it was one word. D-I-D-G-E-R-I-D-O-O, a wind instrument played with continuously vibrating lips to produce a continuous drone while using a special breathing technique called circular breathing. The didgeridoo was developed by Aboriginal peoples of Northern Australia at least 1,500 years ago, and it's now in use around the world, though still most strongly associated with Indigenous 
Australian music. Wow, who knew we go there today talking about the value of nasal breathing. Good stuff, Bernice. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, Wayne. Happy New Year. That's Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental on Route 66 East in Columbia discussing the value of nasal breathing on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.